Oh, good morning again. Uh, thanks again for having me here um, uh, to bring God's word to you. So before we begin, why don't I pray? Let's pray. Father God, will you allow your spirit to be at work today? Be at work in me as I uh, preach and communicate your word and be at work in all of us that we might be open to hear your word, to comprehend your word, but more than that, that we might accept it into our hearts and be ready to be transformed by your word. Amen. Oh, can't you see? You belong to me. How my poor heart aches with every step you take. Every move you take, oh, sorry, every move you make, I'll be watching you. My guess is that most of you, if not all of you, would be familiar with these lyrics. It's from the song, Every Breath You Take by the Police. Uh, and so even if you weren't born in the year 1983 when this song was released, you probably would be familiar with it. Because this song has been called one of the greatest romantic love songs ever written. Uh, people empathize and relate to this heartbroken lover that they think this song is about. Uh, for many, this song's lyrics conjure up compassionate, sentimental responses. But to Sting, the writer of the song, he finds that this popular response is a bit disconcerting because he wrote this song not as a warm, fuzzy love song. The original intent of the song was meant to be a little bit creepy. Yes, it is a love song, but it's a love song from the perspective of an obsessive stalker who can't let go of his ex-girlfriend. But many have often misunderstood this song, not realizing that it's meant to be a little bit unsettling. And actually, it's the case with today's psalm. Because many think this psalm, Psalm 139, is a nice, warm, fuzzy psalm. Maybe you thought so too as you were reading this psalm. But spoiler alert, whilst there's no heartbroken stalker hiding in the psalm, it too is meant to be a little bit unsettling to us, to those who read it, to those who sing the words. So why don't we have a look at the psalm? Verse 1 to verse 6. This psalm, probably written about King David, or uh, written by King David, is for the director of music. It's a song to be sung corporately, like we are now sitting together as God's gathered people. And the psalm begins with a simple statement. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. How well does David's Lord know David? Verses 2 to 3. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. See, whether David is at rest, sitting, lying down, or active, rising, getting out, going out, whether David is quietly thinking or even before a word is spoken on his lips, God knows it all. But not just know, as in having some sort of awareness of it. It's an intimate knowledge, isn't it? God perceives my thoughts. He understands them through and through. God discerns all our actions. He evaluates, he measures our actions, every single aspect of our lives. Just like 
a loving husband knows his wife, all her habits, all her quirks, all her passions and fears, because he has paid close attention to her. He has studied her. See, this is the kind of knowledge that God possesses of David and of every single one of us. And so you might say God is omniscient. God is all-knowing with regards to our lives. But this understanding, this intimacy, isn't purely theoretical. Verse 5, you hem me in before, behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. God's intimacy and his knowledge means protection. Being hemmed in might be like being surrounded by shields all around you. And God's hand is laid upon the psalmist, David. He is safely within God's care. And as David reflects upon these truths about God, what what does he conclude? Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. It's much too profound, too deep to be grasped by the simple human mind. See, like theologians trying to nut out how the Trinity works, uh, trying to define all the detailed mechanics of theology. At some point, all theologians, no matter how smart they are, they just have to throw up their hands and say, this knowledge is too much. I can only say so much. I can't go any further. I can't define it any more detailed. It's beyond me. God is too great. Not that it doesn't make sense, but that God's character, the idea here, that God can know every single one of us through and through so completely, so intimately, this idea is too profound for us to understand. All analogies that we might come up with, like the one that I did before, they all fall short of reality. And David continues, not only does God know everything there is to know about him, God is always there no matter what. Verses 7 to 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If David goes up, if he goes down, God's there. If he heads towards the dawn, that is towards the east, God is there. If he heads towards the sea, and for Israel, that's the west, you guessed it, east, west, you might as well add north and south as well, God is there. There is no place on earth where David can escape from God's presence. But it's not just geographical either and physical. The depths, or in other translations, Sheol, in the Old Testament is the name of the realm where the dead all end up. A place which the Old Testament writers thought consisted of, well, nothing. There was no knowledge in Sheol, no remembrance, no praising of God. But see, to David, God's presence is so pervasive that even death itself cannot separate David from God's presence. And so what is God's all-encompassing presence like. Verse 10, God's hand will guide him. His right hand will hold on tight to him. Again, safely within God's strong grasp, wherever he might be. But he continues in verse 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day for darkness is as light to you. Even darkness 
the first place you might think of running to if you want to run from someone. Even there, David cannot free, be free from God. Even if he wanted to escape, he couldn't escape God. Of course, the presence or absence of light would make absolutely no difference to God, wouldn't it? He's infinite. Uh, God created light when the whole universe consisted of, of utter darkness and nothingness, when light hadn't even existed yet. And so God will, of course, always be there, guiding and holding on to David. And so you might say, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere to David, to us. And in verse 13, we find a reason. David gives a reason for the first 12 verses of the psalm. Why can he say that God knows him and is with him in all aspects of his life? Verse 13. For, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. What is the reason that David gives? Well, it's for God is the one who made him. But look at how David describes this process. Verse 13, formed, knitted together. Verse 15, made in secret, intricately woven. Verse 16, saw my unformed body. See, this isn't an image of a factory churning out one product amongst thousands and thousands in a thoughtless, lifeless, mechanical manner. This isn't a picture of random processes. It's not pure coincidence that this gene from his dad and this gene from his mom happened to come together. This is a deeply intimate, intentional, and personal description. It's a picture of God carefully using the finest, most delicate means to put every single fiber of your body in exactly the right place. He sculpted, knitted together every single muscle, bone, organ. Intentional purposeful, hands-on. And what's more, this process that David describes, it's only something that, that God can ever do. Nobody else. The knitting, the sculpting is all done, verse 13, in his mother's womb. Verse 15, being made in secret, woven in the depths of the earth. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. God works miraculously within each womb before the mother is even aware what's going on creating life within darkness, carefully putting together a unique personality, soul, spirit in secret. And so David concludes, God's complete involvement in creating David this way, it means that his entire life, every single day has already been predetermined by God. That is how powerful God's creation of him means to him. It's been written in his book, verse 16, long before they occur. So in other words, God is in complete and utter control of his life. He knew how his entire life would pan out even before he breathed his first breath. And so you might say God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful in David's life and in our lives. How do you conclude something like that? 
Well, David says in verse 17 to 18, How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Once again, David lands on how unfathomable God's nature and his work are to him. Grasping the vastness of God's greatness would be like counting the grains of sand. In other words, impossible. But more than that, these thoughts are precious to David. He treasures them up. Knowing these truths about God, it brings him joy, comfort, and security that the God he worships is so beyond human understanding. Now, at this point, uh, verses 1 to 18, if we were to boil these verses down uh, into theological summaries, you could easily do that, couldn't you? Uh, Verse 1 to 6, God is omniscient. He knows everything. Verses 7 to 12, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And verses 13 to 18, God is omnipotent. He can do anything. Uh, That would be a much more concise uh, psalm, and it would be much easier for us to, to, to learn the lyrics of, isn't it? But what is wrong with simply stating that these three truths are a summary of Psalm 139? What is wrong if I told you that Psalm 139 is saying God is omniscient, is omnipresent, is omnipotent? Well, one thing you've probably noticed already is that these theological, theological truths about God are deeply personal to David, aren't they? They're deeply personal. Just look at the number of times he addresses God personally and how he relates these truths to himself in the first person. Verse 1, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Verse 2, you know when I sit. You discern my going out. You, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in. It continues in the second stanza. Where can I go? You are there. You are there. You are there. In the third stanza, you created my inmost being. See, theology, knowledge and information about God isn't meant to be abstract. Knowing more and more about God isn't supposed to simply fill up our brains with information. But rather, it ought to help to build our relationship with God, to help us realize what God is doing in our lives, that God is not far off. God desires us to love and rightly worship Him. Knowledge of God is meant to help us in our relationship with God by teaching us how to talk back to God with these truths. Recognizing that God is the one who knows our deepest thoughts even before we're aware of them ourselves. Recognizing that there is no escape from God's control. Confessing to God that He is in control of every single aspect of our lives. And doesn't this shape the way we approach God? It has to, right? This knowledge humbles us before the infinite God of the universe who knows us better than we know ourselves. And so let's ask ourselves today, how has what you've been learning about God grown your intimacy with Him? As we sit here Sunday by Sunday, as we attend Bible studies, as you've allowed this teaching about God to, have you allowed this teaching about God to grow your intimacy with Christ? Or does it stay neatly compartmentalized in our brains, separated in our daily lives, not accessed again on Monday, when you head to work or school on Monday, only to be accessed when the right Bible study question comes up again? I think it's a scary question to ask, isn't it? 
I think because I find it so easy as I learn more and more about the truths about God to simply respond by saying, wow, that, that's amazing, or that's so cool, and leave it just there. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with being amazed by the truths about God. I mean, David here in this psalm is marveled over and over again by God's truths. But David goes far beyond that, doesn't he? He makes it personal. He builds a living relationship with God. Now, this psalm could easily end here, couldn't it? David has described in great personal detail what God is like, all-knowing, everywhere, all-powerful. What an incredible and faithful declaration of who God is. And really, it's these first 18 verses that the psalm is really popular for. But the problem is the psalm doesn't end here, and it moves in a way that might surprise us. Verse 19. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? Have I nothing but hatred for them? I count them my enemies. Well, that was sudden, wasn't it? How can David so quickly go from praising God to now being filled with malicious intent? I mean, this man of God, King David, how can he be asking for such a violent and cruel end to his enemies? Slay them in verse 19? How can he boast of hating them in verses 20 and 21? Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to go into great detail about how these sort of hostile prayers work in the book of Psalms, but we can make one very important observation here, can't we? The first is that we need to recognize that David is talking about God's enemies. God's enemies. See, these aren't people who are opposed to David, and that's it. But they're wicked and generally bloodthirsty men. They're violent men themselves. But more than that, more importantly, they openly bring dishonor to God's name. They speak of Yahweh, God's, uh, David's Lord, with evil intent, verse 20. They misuse his name. They're in open rebellion against God in verse 21. And this, this is the reason that David hates them. I count them my enemies. Why? Because they're your enemies, God. See, David hasn't spoken about how these evildoers have sinned against him, but it's all about how they have offended Yahweh, offended God. And so can you see David's concern for God's name here? especially against the truths of verses 1 to 18. This almighty, ever-present, all-knowing God, they dare to dishonor you. They dare to speak ill of such a powerful God. God, get them out of your sight. Get them out of my sight. Remove all opposition to you, God. Isn't this just another way of praying, your kingdom come? May your reign be so obvious, so evident, that no one dare oppose you again. Now this might already give us an inkling that this psalm isn't as nice, warm, and fuzzy uh, as we might have thought. But there's another aspect of this psalm which ought to leave us a little bit unsettled. Again, particularly in the verse, first 16 verses. Did you find something a little bit disturbing as we read through this psalm? Because these attributes about God, his power, his knowledge, these truths 
are actually meant to be a little bit ambiguous. I describe God's infinite power and knowledge as something that was inherently fantastic and great for us. But is it really so great? Is God knowing us through and through? Is the fact that we can't escape from God, that He is completely in control of our lives, is that really good news? Uh, now, you may have heard on the news recently that China is rolling out new measures to ensure that their citizens have a positive contribution to society. They want to enforce this by placing surveillance cameras uh, to cover every square inch of public space, every grocery item you buy tracked to determine what kind of person you are. They monitor all kinds of uh, online activity to scan through everything that you post on social media. And all of this is to build up some sort of social score of how good of a citizen you are. Help an old lady across the road and you get, your score goes up. Uh, buy some booze and your score goes down. And it determines what kind of privileges that you'll get access to. A good citizen will get rewarded, while a bad one, well, they'll lose out. Now let me ask this question again. Is this sort of system inherently good or bad for the citizens of China? Would you want to live under this system where you cannot escape the government's watchful eye? Where every aspect of your life is known to them? Well, it kind of depends, doesn't it? If you love the Chinese government, if you live well-behaved lives, publicly praising China's rulers, then you'll reap the benefits. Access to the best schools, healthcare, discounts. But if you step out of line, then this system is absolutely terrible for you. Recently, a journalist who spoke out against the government's corruption, well, his social score got slashed so low that he can't even access basic amenities like catch catching public transport. See, whether your ruler's immense power is good news or bad news depends on where you stand with the ruler, doesn't it? And so that's similar to what we find in Psalm 139. Is God knowing everything about us good or bad? Is the fact that He is everywhere, that there's no place that we can run from Him, that He is completely in control of our lives, my future, my destiny, is that comforting or is that scary? Well, it depends if you're on God's side or not. And so look at how David communicates this in Psalm 139 using ambiguity. Verse 5, you hem me in before and behind. See, this word hem, it's actually a neutral word. It can mean both surrounding for protection, as we said, but it can also mean to be encircled by your enemies, waiting to, destro to destroy you, like being trapped by God with nowhere to go. Verse 5 again, your hand is upon me. This can be a hand of comfort, of assurance, but in the Old Testament, it's also, it can be used to describe a hand of judgment and punishment. Verse 7, David, Lee, David surprisingly uses the word flee. Flee in response to God. And fleeing is something that you only do when someone is chasing you, someone who's your enemy. In verse 10, he describes God's right hand as holding him fast, or he seizes him. Again, this can be comforting as God seizes him for protection, but it can also be seizing in anger as those, as those who rebel against God. See, all these words in the psalm, they introduce this unsettling ambiguity. These attributes of God, David says, they're not inherently good for us, 
by default. They remind us that yes, God's nature and His attributes, they can be comforting, sure. They can bring security. But they can also bring fear and dread if we're not on the right side. So now please hear me very carefully because I'm not equating our all-powerful God with a power-hungry human government like China. This is just an illustration. Because God is just. God is righteous. He's perfect. He's loving. He's full of compassion. But it does warn us even if we agree with all these theological truths about God, He is all-knowing everywhere. Even that God is righteous and loving, we can agree with that, but that does not necessarily mean that we're in a right relationship with Him. Knowing about God doesn't make us good friends with God. Just like knowing the stats of your favorite footballer or basketballer doesn't mean you're His personal friend. And so hear how the psalm ends after expressing this ambiguity of God's attributes, after this great plea to remove God's enemies from him, David turns his prayer on himself. Verses 23 to 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you thought that David's plea to remove God's enemy was a little bit self-righteous, well then this section just blows that out of the water, doesn't it? Search me, God. Know me. See if there is anything in me that might be offensive to you. And see, David here echoes how he started the psalm. He asked God that who has searched and who has known him, search me again. Test me again. Reveal to me my true self that I'm not even aware of. If I am sinning, if I'm exhibiting any of these traits that I've described of your enemies, then show it to me and put me back on the right path. Lead me in the way everlasting. How does David deal with this ambiguity of God's awesome nature? He applies it to himself. He becomes self-reflective. He doesn't rule out the possibility that he might possess within something that is offensive to God. Even King David himself. And so he asked God to shape him in, light, in line of being in a right relationship with him. That God might mold him to be on the right side of this infinite creator. Now the thing is, if we're honest with ourselves, I think it ought to be pretty scary for someone to know us through and through like this psalm describes, doesn't it? Every dark thought that we've had about those who we don't agree with, those who don't get along with, the moments where we've overstepped the boundary in our anger and our frustration, what we've done in secret that we thought no one could find out. But if we're honest, knowing that God is so all-knowing, so powerful, that should terrify us, shouldn't it? How can any of us dare to stand to face God? And the thing is, why isn't the Bible then a horror story? Why is the Christian faith not controlled by fear but actually by joy and singing. Well, it's the gospel, isn't it? Because God sent His Son into this world to save us from this reality. Because all of our sins, all our rebellion was taken from our shoulders, placed on Jesus as He hung on the cross. In fact, Jesus experienced all the terrible negatives of Psalm 139. He felt, He knew what it was like to be God's enemy, the darker side of what it was like to be on the wrong side of God's infinite power. 
He went through that so that we might be assured that we only receive the positives of Psalm 139. So that the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God, when he looks at us, he no longer sees all our filthy, selfish, unloving deeds, but rather he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? But this psalm also tells us that we can't afford to take God's grace for granted. Knowledge about God, knowledge about Jesus dying for, on a cross for us even, it demands a response a personal response. Because Jesus' death on a cross is only good news if we follow him, isn't it? And so if you're here today and you haven't yet made that decision to follow Jesus, then can I encourage you, you need to make up your mind. Which side of this powerful God do you want to be on? It's not something to brush off lightly, is it? Especially not when the cost has already been paid for you. It's waiting for you to accept. And for those of us who have already chosen to follow Christ, can I encourage you guys, don't just let this be a once-off decision, left behind, marked in your calendar, a distant memory. Because just like David, we ought to continually make the personal response to follow God, to live God's way. Remember, we haven't just been saved so that we can keep on living the way we used to, to just kick up our feet and, and wait for heaven to come around. But no, we've been saved into a loving, intimate relationship that we want to keep building with our almighty God. And so as we meditate on God's truths, on the cross by which we have been saved, let us draw near to God all the more. Let us keep bringing our thanks to Him, living our lives to please God every single day. And don't forget the other thing that David models for us here. Let us keep asking God to search us, to reveal to us anything that might be offensive to God in, in, within us. It's pleading to God that He will transform us to make us holy. Is this something that you've prayed for? That God, through His intimate knowledge of us, might show us hidden sins that even we're not aware of, that we might repent of them and, and grow in holiness? I can remember a couple of times when I've actually prayed this prayer that God might reveal to me my sin. And of course, sometime later, I do get confronted with particular sins, uh, be it going to Bible college thinking I'm already holy, and then God reveals to me that I've made study an idol, I've made grades an idol, or realizing that I haven't been as loving to my wife and my kids as I ought to be. And when I realize that, it's crushing to the soul. I'm going to be a church leader, and I'm doing this, the sense of guilt and shame that I felt was totally depressing. But then I remembered, I did ask God to reveal my sin to me, didn't I? And what's the point of it? What's the point of asking God to reveal our sin to ourselves? It's, isn't it so that we can deal with it, to repent and to grow in holiness, to grow to be more like Christ? It's a hard thing to pray for, isn't it? But after reading the psalm, I don't think we can afford not to. And so can I encourage you all to pray like this? That because you now live completely free from, say, from facing God's punishment from sin, that because you desire to please God and to live to please Him, that you desire, that your desire will be to grow in holiness so much that you would have the darkness of your heart unearthed 
for you to see so that you can repent. Christ has sacrificed himself on the cross to make a way for us to God, to take away our sin, bring us new life. We need to make a response to this truth, to commit ourselves to him, to ask God to lead us in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the truths about you, about who you are, your power, your knowledge, everything you are. We thank you for the truth that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins, that it's all taken away, that all we have to do is follow you. Lord, help us all today to make it personal once again. Help us to pray back to you, to sing praises to you out of the truths of these truths, out of the greatness of these truths. And Father, we pray that we will be a people that long to seek you so much, long to be close to you so much, that we would even want the darkness of our hearts to be revealed to us, that we might continue to grow, to please you, to be intimate with you. Amen. Thank you, Phyllis, for your encouraging word.